Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you're tuned in from. I'm Bill Glaskell of the Volcker Alliance. I'm here today with Susan Wachter from Penn IUR. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. And this is Special Briefing. This is our year-end edition, so uh, a quick happy holidays to everybody. We'll be back at the end with some news about 2022, and we have a terrific panel for you today. The subject is state and city spending of federal infrastructure funds, not only in the infrastructure bill that passed recently, but also in ARPA, and uh, we'll look forward to Build Back Better and where that's going. We have today a a special, special guest, uh, all our guests are special, of course, but a special, special guest, Congressman Earl Blumenauer from Oregon, Mr. Infrastructure on the House Ways and Means Committee, and he's going to be discussing, guess what? We also have several experts who live and breathe public finance infrastructure. Rebecca Reinhardt, controller of the city of Philadelphia. Thank you for joining us today. David Glick from Boston University, my alma mater and principal investigator on the Menino Survey of Mayors, which just uh, recently came out. And Patrick Brett, managing director of uh, cities. Municipal Capital Markets Group, also chair of the MSRB, and Susan will introduce him further. City, by the way, is one of the is one of the supporters of the Menino Survey. Speaking of supporters, thank you very much to Penn IUR, to the Volcker Alliance, and the Century Foundation for making these broadcasts possible. A couple of quick housekeeping details: all of the audience's mics are muted. We've taken questions from many of you in advance, and we'll get to that in the Q&A. Congressman Blumenauer can't stay for the entire period, so we're going we're gonna to break with our usual format and ask Earl a few questions right at the, right at the start. That's about it for housekeeping. So why don't we, why don't we get right to, uh, right to the order of the day? Congressman Blumenauer, tell us about your thoughts on this, this hard-won bill that just made through what you see as the biggest priorities and also what's, uh, what lies ahead. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to continue these conversations a number of us have had over the years. Uh, this is, I think, a unique moment. Uh, I went to Congress uh, working to try and develop support for infrastructure in the built environment, 10 years on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee advancing these issues. I transferred to the Ways and Means Committee because I felt that it was important that Congress and the federal government step up to be a full financial partner. And as you all know, the federal government's been missing in action. It's a bipartisan failure. Uh, It didn't quite work with Clinton. George Bush, despite recommendations of two of his blue ribbon committees, just couldn't pull the trigger. The Obama administration did in the American Recovery Act have some infrastructure investments, but it was relatively modest. And it was something that, frankly, was not a priority of President Obama. With the election of Joe Biden, we have, for the first time in my 25-year career, we have a president who is not only committed to rebuilding and renewing America, but is willing to put resources behind it. And because of the Democratic victories 
taking control of the Senate, retaining control of the House. We've had an opportunity to actually act on that. The first bill, the bipartisan effort that has been signed into law is transformational. It's not as good as what we passed in the House with our legislation, which uh, I think would have been fantastic. But I will say that what we've enacted is um, good enough. It's a massive investment. We're going to have $110 billion to repair roads and bridges and support transformational projects. Something as we all live our lives on Zoom and we deal with things from telemedicine to distance learning, the $65 billion for broadband is going to be a very significant initiative for education, for healthcare, uh, and both rural uh, and urban America. There's the largest federal investment in public transit in history, almost $90 billion. Uh, and given the trauma that has been inflicted on our transit agencies around the country, it couldn't have come soon enough. And since we've been working with people in uh, the metropolitan area, the Northeast Corridor, about the challenges of trying to bring Amtrak into the 21st century, the $66 billion in rail funding would eliminate the Amtrak maintenance background, would help us get the long overdue modernization of the Northeast Corridor, and help bring world-class passenger rail uh, service outside the corridor. These are extraordinarily important developments. And as I say, in each instance, larger than anything that we've seen. One of the, there are a number of things we could talk about that uh, speak to priorities shared by people on this call. But suffice it to say, one of the things that I am most excited about is that this funding comes with discretion for the administration to be able to spend it right. We didn't get Peter DeFazio's bill, but there is still enough flexibility in this package to be able to address priorities for everybody on this call and with communities all across the country. It is imperative, I think, we on the outside world, those who are not part of the federal government, need to work hard to take advantage of these resources. This flexibility only works if it is utilized. It can be transformational in terms of reducing greenhouse gases to be able to deal with the racial and economic inequities that we have seen with past infrastructure investments. But if we don't do it right, it could actually increase disparities and increase greenhouse gases in the sector transportation that accounts for most of our carbon pollution. So it's a great opportunity, but it is not guaranteed. I think that puts the pressure on all of us to be able to work with our metropolitan planning organizations, work with transit agencies, be able to communicate to state departments of transportation that we don't want to just put it in the time-honored projects that, frankly, are not going to get us where we need to go. One of the things that was most significant, I think, in the Obama administration, the development of the Tiger Grants, which really placed a premium on people being able to figure out how to utilize the resources for multiple purposes. But we can do the same thing 
with these resources. Now, beyond where we're at uh, in terms of just roads, bridges, transit, there are opportunities moving forward. You mentioned, uh, Bill, the reconciliation package, the Build Back Better, which is still alive. I am reasonably confident that we're going to be able to get a major portion of it enacted. It's not going to be what we, again, what we envision in the House, what we passed out of our Ways and Means Committee, but there will be uh, opportunities for the human infrastructure, which is critical if we're going to be able to return to normal. Things like early childhood education and family support, child tax and earned income credit, investments in clean energy, extending uh, some of the tax credits that we have uh, for over 10 years, something that I've been working on for years, dealing with the direct pay of those credits to be able to monetize them and use them more effectively. These are uh, elements that uh, will complement what we've done with the infrastructure. But I want to say that for me, the biggest concern is what we're going to do to make sure that we get the resources allocated in ways that are going to maximize the impact, dealing with reducing carbon pollution, dealing with strengthening communities, healing some of the tremendous scars on communities for a number of people on this call from infrastructure projects uh, in decades past that really were not done artfully and put the burden, the cost on low-income communities, particularly people of color, that still fester. Here's an opportunity to have resources to invest in projects that will heal those scars. We have an administration that is inclined to do the right thing. President Biden is not just uh, supporting the infrastructure investment, but his administration and many of the people who are there understand these needs. Secretary Buttigieg, I think, is gifted, a tremendous communicator. And although he wasn't mayor of the largest uh, city in the country, South Bend with 100,000 or something like that, he was able to learn these lessons both in his own city, work that he did nationally, and international travel. His instincts are very good, and his knowledge base is remarkable. And the deputy is somebody that we all know, Polly Trottenberg. This is the A-train. Secretary Buttigieg, a gifted communicator and politician. Polly Trottenberg, who's uh, demonstrated her knowledge and skill by being the administrator of the New York transportation system. We couldn't have a better deputy. I think it's hard to imagine a better secretary for these circumstances, uh, but we need to work with them to be able to take full advantage because there will um, instantly be cross pressures, people that want to get that old road project, some suburban bypass, some bridge that was really important 10 or 15 or 20 years ago may not be so important now, but still has the momentum and the political oomph behind it. So we need to do our job to make sure that the administration is empowered to fund these programs properly. I'll, I'll stop at that point. Uh, we might discuss it further. I am hopeful that we will be able to organize our efforts, particularly those of you on this call are in a very sensitive area. We've got the problems with the Northeast Corridor in terms of transit. We have mature cities that need these resources. The policies that you have been discussing and debating and mobilized support, it's 
ready to be teed up. And we need you to do your part to be able to get the most out of these resources. Well, Susan, thank you very much, Congressman. Susan, why don't you read off a couple of questions? Sure, and I, I want to come back to your clarion call, Congressman. We need to fund these programs in the right way. We need to organize our efforts in the right way. And you're referring to it, the interactions of all levels of government. So how best to make that happen? Do we have the institutions in place to get it done right? What can the federal government do to get it to help? Well, I think this administration has put forth policies and programs administered by people who share their values. And as I mentioned, there are lots of institutional cross pressures. There'll be political efforts. There'll be organized groups that will be pushing for more traditional investment. As I mentioned, I would have much rather had the House bill with its uh, clarion call to fix it first, its mandate for low carbon projects. Uh, but we can still do that within this framework. I think what we need to do is make sure that we're building our political and policy infrastructure. I've been in discussion with some of the folks in the philanthropic community. You know, back when we first had Ice-T, major funders stepped up to provide resources to help people navigate that novel legislation. And more recently, Rockefeller Ford, a decade ago, made some investments towards building that civic infrastructure. It actually did not appear to result in the transformational changes we wanted. There was shifts in the political landscape, shifts in political control. And frankly, we didn't have the follow through in Congress. We need to reconstitute, I think, that support from the philanthropic community. We need to make sure that the groups and organizations that have been moving in this direction are focused and revitalized. And as I say, these decisions are going to be made not just at the federal level, they're going to be made in the region, transit agencies, and state departments of transportation. We have access to them. We need to use it. Thank you, Congressman. I, what I'm hearing you say is we need to put more efforts right now into the institutional framework and bring in philanthropy and other not-for-profit groups, as well as government levels to make it happen right. We thank you very much. We hope you can stay on for a bit, and we appreciate you yeah, being here. Well, I have one quick, quick follow-up before, we go, before go we go to uh, uh, our next panelist. The Fed is obviously very worried about inflation. The White House seems to be worried about in inflation. We're all worried about it. Does the rollout of a trillion dollars in infrastructure is infrastructure funding from Congress, is this going to run smack dab into constraints on the number of workers available, engineers, construction workers? There's Buy America uh, provisions in some of the, the supplies, steel, concrete. So we, have, we already have a lot of, we, we don't have enough truck drivers. We don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. How do you roll out this massive spending plan and make sure that there's enough resources available on the ground and on the drawing boards? It's a great observation and area of concern. Uh, we've had supply chain stressed. We've had problems in terms of being able to get the workforce that we need, no doubt about it. But I think the goal here is to be able to do this right. If we are able to harness opportunities in, for example, inner city neighborhoods, work with communities of color, being able to develop new approaches to the supply chain, 
it can actually be a virtuous circle. We can direct it towards things that will make a difference in these neighborhoods and be able to build the workforce, to be able to deal with some of the problems with the supply chain, the discrepancies that we have, the resources are here that we can do something about it. And that's why I think it's important that we look in a comprehensive way at rebuilding and renewing, that we have an emphasis on equity, uh, that we use some of these resources to be able to strengthen local opportunities from apprenticeship and training. The pieces are there. Part of the response to the pandemic and, frankly, the trauma that we've seen uh, in urban America, cries for racial justice, pointing out the disparities in healthcare and economic opportunities. This could be a to remedy it. We just have to be smart about how we do it. We have to be patient and we have to be focused on our priorities. We want to rebuild and renew America, but we want to do it in a way that's equitable. We want to share the resources and people on this call and elsewhere around the country have a good idea of how to do it. We want to use these resources to empower them and help them accomplish that goal. Well, thank you, Congressman. Stick with us as, as long as you can. Reminder that we're all taking part in special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. It's available on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, as well as all the archived uh, 25, 26 episodes. We encourage you to go there. And, and Susan, let's leave it to you to, to introduce Controller Reinhardt. Thank you, Congressman. Great pleasure to move to the local perspective, these funds will be spent after all on the local state levels. And we are delighted to have with us the Philadelphia City Comptroller, the independent elected watchdog of the city of Philadelphia and the spectacular Rebecca Reinhardt. Our great pleasure to have you with us, Rebecca. Please give us your perspective on the importance of infrastructure and the oversight of infrastructure spending. Absolutely. Thanks, Susan, for the introduction. And it's great to be here today. As Susan said, I am the city controller of Philadelphia, which is the independent financial watchdog. And so my office does all of the financial audits as well as oversees financial issues, makes recommendations, and looks at operational issues as well. Before I was the city controller, just for a little bit about what experience I bring to this role. I did work on Wall Street and finance for about seven years and then for the city of Philadelphia for nine. So it's great to be able to put all that experience together as an elected official here in Philadelphia. I'm going to talk a little bit today about my office's work on the American Rescue Plan money, which I know is different than infrastructure money. We laid out a really detailed framework, uh, a vision on the way that I think that the city of Philadelphia, the mayor's administration should be treating the rescue plan money. And I think that level of transparency and detail around a plan and how it's being spent would also be applicable uh, when the infrastructure money starts to flow to city governments across the country. So back when the pandemic hit our country and Philadelphia specifically. In 2020, it obviously significantly impacted the city's budget. We had a budget shortfall of about $750 million uh, the first year. At that point, Mayor Kenny put forth a budget proposal which had some tax cuts and some severe cuts 
tax increases, I apologize, tax increases and pretty severe cuts to services, to certain services such as the arts. And my office looked at that and said, wait a second, we don't need tax increases. We don't need to have these severe cuts to the arts if the city were managed better. And I say that because the city of Philadelphia had about a billion dollar increase in spending over the previous four years. And that's about 20% increase. And at the same time, the city's resident survey had actually shown a decline in resident satisfaction with city services. So in my view, I thought, okay, well, if the city spent a billion dollars more and resident satisfaction declined, then we should be able to figure out how to balance the budget without raising taxes on people. And so my office put forth that plan and we figured it out and put forth that plan. And a lot of it is does have to do with managing the city better, overtime management, cost control, things that don't impact services, but have to do with good operations. So then we get to the next year, the next budget cycle for fiscal 22, the city uh, was facing about a $450 million budget shortfall. That's when the American Rescue Plan money was announced and really is an incredible opportunity for cities if used correctly. So the city of Philadelphia is getting $1.4 billion from the American Rescue Plan. That's a lot, given that our budget shortfall was $450 million in fiscal 22 and really represents a huge opportunity for large cities across the country. And Philadelphia is a city and a county. So we get the county money from the rescue plan as well as the city money. And really, I do believe represents this this big opportunity. So my office put out a detailed plan saying, okay, we're about to get $1.4 billion. If we take even $850 million and put it aside for tax shortfalls, $850 850 million would be about 450 million the first year, and then declining amounts in the out years. I believe it's very important that governments wean themselves off of the stimulus, declining in the out years, and then make very targeted investments into specific areas that are challenges. Philadelphia is the poorest big city in the country. We have the highest uh, homicide rate per capita. We have low educational attainment. There's many challenges facing our city. Our city is amazing, though. I don't want to depress anyone on the call. We have a lot going for Philly, but there's a lot of challenges. We put forth a plan that said, okay, target three to five specific challenges. Anti-violence. We've got to get this violence down. Uh, let's put $181 million in for anti-violence, specific focused on intervention work, on programs that have been shown to work in other places. And let's fund it at the level that New York and LA fund it per capita. That's one thing per capita per shooting. One thing I, I really believe is that cities need to look to each other. We need to look to other cities to say, what is the best practice? What is working in other places? And let's implement it here. And then we laid out a plan for poverty for economic development in this American Rescue Plan report and said, here is a way that we can truly create change and also be transparent. I think it's very important that government be more transparent with 
how it spends taxpayers' dollars. And there's an opportunity with this rescue plan money to do that. I pushed for that last year. The the mayor did not go that route. And uh, we got the first tranche, the first $700 million in last May. It was uh, basically just used for general operations. The mayor's administration's plan is to use the rescue plan money just for revenue replacement is what their publicly stated use is for revenue replacement only, which I think is a lost opportunity. I think that one, it creates more risk of what happens when the stimulus runs out. And two, it's a lost opportunity to really invest targeted dollars into specific challenges. I mean, when do local governments and especially big, poorer cities like Philadelphia get all of this upfront money that we can actually say, let's let's put money towards these things that work in other places, measure them, evaluate and see if it works. And if it does scale it up, and if it doesn't, don't fund it anymore. That type of creativity, we normally don't get that opportunity. So that is what I'll continue to push for as we head into this next budget cycle with that rescue plan money, because I think that is so, so important. And I think that on the infrastructure money, there are so many details still left to be worked out. The money flowing to the states first, I think also leaves local governments with a lot of questions. And of course, it's a great opportunity. We need infrastructure improvement so much. And there are so many types of infrastructure improvement we need. We need just general repair to bridges and roads. We need special projects such as fixing neighborhoods that have been cut off by past infrastructure projects. And then we also need issues fixed related to climate change. And we saw that in Philly, in Philadelphia with Hurricane Ida, where the Schuylkill flooded into center city, Philadelphia, Schuylkill River, for those of you who don't know Philadelphia, the Schuylkill River flooded into center city, Philadelphia, in a way that had not been seen before in people's lives. And in fact, part of the highway, the 676 highway was completely underwater for more than a day. That really showed what climate change is doing and the protections that we as a city need. So I'll just close with moving forward. I think cities across the country need detailed plans for how they're spending this money and need to really be very precise and targeted about what they're doing and what outcomes they want and how also the governments are going to promote the projects in an equitable way. Thank you for having me, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. Thank you, Controller Reinhardt. That's very, very instructive and very interesting roadmap for where we want to go. And we're going to stay on the city subject right now with David Glick from Boston University. Every year, his center surveys mayors. The last one is, I believe, 128 mayors, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. One of the takeaways that, that I got from this, this survey was a, a big table that listed their spending priorities or spending once. Infrastructure was very high. Uh, infrastructure and housing both were very high on the on the list. So, David, tell us what the mayors are, are telling you, and also how this compares to your to your past surveys. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to excited to be here with you all to talk about this. And and you set it up very nicely. I think I basically have a sort of bigger picture version of Rebecca's talk, which is you know, a number of a number of cities and and like her sort of for context. We did our survey 
in the summer. So the questions were designed in the spring. The mayor's answered in June, July, and August. So I have, this is uh, rescue plan money, not infrastructure money and summer, summer economic and COVID context, not current economic and, and COVID context. But I think like Rebecca, we think there's some, some lessons to be drawn from their views on when asked questions about rescue plan money that will sort of carry forward. So the big picture on our project, and I'll get through this quite quickly, is we invite all mayors of cities over 75,000 residents to participate. We do live, either phone or in past years, in-person interviews with some of them. So these are mayors talking directly to us, and we ask them a variety of questions. And so this year, this was not an infrastructure-focused survey. It was a survey focused on COVID recovery, on housing, on homelessness, on a, on a few other issues. And I think there's some trade-offs here. The questions, the results I'll talk about in a minute are not of the category of us asking, would you like more infrastructure money? And them saying, yes, they're in the variety of, uh, you know, how would you like to spend this transformational rescue plan money of which infrastructure and various other priorities are, are all on the table. So that's, I think, just kind of the big picture context. Just the last thing to note is because of our, the way we do the recruiting, we get a really nice representative sample of the broader universe of American cities. Um, there's about 450 of them above our population cutoff. We got this year, we had, I believe, 126 of them did sort of full, full participation. And what I can sort of talk about for, for a moment here is a couple of questions we began near the beginning of the survey with, right? We asked about the American Rescue Plan and dovetailing nicely off Rebecca's comments. We asked what best described how will, how will this money affect your city? Um, and basically the choices were it will enable them to backfill gaps or it will enable them to do transformational things, at least across our sample of mayors, the transformational things. 78% of mayors either selected transformational things in isolation or said it will allow us to do both. So um, certainly big picture, they are thinking big or seeing big opportunities with this money, which is perhaps not surprising. But um, looking back to where we probably were, if we asked a similar question in the summer of 2020, when we asked about budget gaps and things, right, I don't think there was a lot of optimism about being able to do big transformational investments in 2021. They were much more concerned with potential devastating cuts and program cuts and, and things like that, right? More, probably more important is the follow-up question is, okay, you say you're going to do big transformational things. Give us two of them. What types of things would you like to spend them on? This is this is sort of that figure that I think mean, is kind of the, the most probably most important information we have we have for this panel, right? So we did our best. Again, this was an open-ended question. They could have said anything. We got a wide variety of responses. We did our best to sort of categorize them into meaningful categories, right? Roughly half of the mayors said something, you know, that was definitely in an infrastructure category as one of their top two. If we include housing, and I say only if because some talked about physical housing investments, which we probably would consider infrastructure, others talk more about housing programs and support. So, but it's closer to two thirds talked about infrastructure. If we lump in all of the ones who mentioned housing as one of their top two transformational things they would like to do with rescue plan money. Within this sort of the breakdown, the most common was transportation infrastructure, roads and bridges and, and such things, but not far behind the next couple biggest categories, municipal facilities, which includes buildings, parks, broadband, and water investment. So roughly one in 10 chose water investments. For example, water infrastructure is one of their top two transformational things they'd like to do. Another roughly one in 10 chose broadband or said broadband. They didn't choose it. They, they set it off the top of their head as one of the top two things they would like to do. And so that's kind of the big picture, right? And along with this, we got a number of comments about how transformational this is. In some cases, I think it fits a category of this is once in a lifetime money and we're going to try to spend it on something that we never would get to do otherwise or something that 
normally the politics or finding the money would be way too messy. I think in other cases, and this I think starts to, and I'll try to conclude by by sort of coming back to the congressman's comments and perhaps concerns about is this going to just be quote traditional spending with all the pluses and negatives that come with that, or is this going to be something really different? I think I was trying to think this through as he was talking. I think it's kind of a mixed bag. Some definitely talked about being able to do things they otherwise would not do. I think others talked more in terms of here's our list. Now we can finally fund some of these things that we weren't expecting to fund. I think qualitatively, it's sort of a mix of those two things. I think one way to see this is we look, I took a quick look back at closed ended questions we have asked about infrastructure in the last couple of years. And when we asked about top infrastructure priorities, in 2019 and 2015, they largely correspond to kind of the rank order that I talked about earlier, roads and bridges, water, broadband, kind of roughly in that roughly in that order. So from that sense, some similarity probably to traditional or sort of quote normal infrastructure spending. On the other hand, again, this is just qualitative at the moment. I wish um, I can try to go back and do this more rigorously, but I was just looking back through some of the comments. Certainly a number did talk about equity concerns in ways that we maybe haven't before. They talked about targeting these investments to neighborhoods that have traditionally been left behind, talked about building youth centers, talked about parks in, in particular areas, investments that would help certain small businesses in certain areas, and mixed in certainly where we're some talk about sustainability and, and climate concerns as well. So, you know, I think big picture, sort of a mixed bag on, on that front. Overall, not a dramatically different set of infrastructure priorities than, than we've gotten in the past, but I think effort in, or at least some thinking this is a chance to do something different, or at least maybe spend the money somewhat differently. So I will stop there and also happy to answer questions. And thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Uh, it's Susan's turn to introduce introduce Patrick, who, by the way, is coming to us live from Slovenia. You're, you're probably our first, our first uh, Slovenian panelist. <laughs> and it is my great pleasure to introduce Patrick Brett, who is the head of municipal debt at city and also chair of municipal securities rulemaking board and also so proud to say a member of our board of advisors at the penn institute for urban research patrick when we last had you on perhaps a year or so ago it was a very different setting as we've just heard from david glick in the year and a half ago or so we were in a mode of being extremely concerned about the stresses that cities were under being hit by the first wave of COVID under very bad economic circumstances as well going into a recession. Today, it's quite different. And there's a potential for transformational spending, and it will have a major impact on muni markets. Please tell us how you see the impact on muni markets. Some things are still the same, unfortunately, a year later, but a lot has changed. Well, first, thank you for having me. Thank you to the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR for focusing on this topic. It's a big, important topic. It's a complex one as well. I think institutions like Penn in particular are particularly well-placed, I think, to with Penn IUR working across all 12 schools at Penn. I think a topic like this has so much complexity, you need that uh, kind of horsepower uh, trained on it. But I'm gonna talk over the next few minutes about, I'll probably break it into three areas. First, in terms of this bill, first, the significance of it, just to the country in general versus everything else that we see in this topic. Second, sort of impact on the municipal market. And third, just the impact of some of the recent events in the market, the Fed and inflation concerns, uh, like you asked about. So first, just in terms of the significance of this bill, there's a lot of noise, obviously, that people have been talking about infrastructure for a while. This really is 
I mean, everything the congressman said, I mean, this is a step function increase in spending and infrastructure. It's not everything that people hoped for. I think American Society of Civil Engineers was putting the funding gap in infrastructure over the, over this period at two and a half trillion dollars. If you break the, the 1.2 trillion down, there's 700 billion of what they call baseline spending and 550 billion of incremental new spending. So really we have an extra 550 billion towards that two and a half to three trillion gap. But that's a big investment still by the federal government and the federal government doesn't fund all the cost of that infrastructure. So that's that's big new spending. It's going into things uh, like there's 110 billion for roads and bridges, traditional things as well, like freight rail 66 and passenger rail 66 billion uh, and some new things like was mentioned as a priority in the Menino survey. Uh, there's 65 billion of new spending going to high speed Internet. So important new spending. Uh, also, there's really important, and this is getting a little more in the weeds, but important improvements to existing programs. We talk sometimes about having an infrastructure, creating an infrastructure bank. We already have one in the, in the U.S. Department of Transportation in the TIFIA program, which is the Transportation Infrastructure Loan Program at USDOT. It's been a very successful program. There's important improvements to that, uh, which I think are going to be materially helpful to people that are using that program. Things like extending the loan term that you can get from the federal government to up to 75 years from 30 years. And some of these projects do have useful lives uh, into 100 years. Uh, so it, that makes sense. That's going to help leverage this money. So, And, and it also will allow things like funding airports, financing airports with that TIFIA program as well. So it'll expand sort of the eligible sectors and broaden the impact of it. There's also some brand new programs like that that were created. Uh, there's a new infrastructure bank, if you will, for carbon capture and sequestration called the CIFIO program under the Department of Energy, which is in a lot of ways is not just the name, uh, is also copying and building on the success of the TIFIO program at USDOT. And that's going to help build the infrastructure for carbon capture and sequestration uh, in the United States. So those are those are all important things. Uh, the congressman mentioned some of the things, something that was even more in the weeds in terms of direct pay for some tax credits, which is quite important because I think we're relying in this bill, but also especially in the Build Back Better bill on tax credits for financing a lot of the priorities in those bills. And there's a limit, without getting too in the weeds, there's there's a limited amount of potential demand for that, for, for tax credits. I think making those direct pays sort of allows the market to absorb everything that I think policymakers hope to achieve with tax credits. That's sort of the significance of the bills at a high level. I guess second, in terms of the role of the municipal market in all this, I'd say at, at a high level, there's a huge supporting role of the municipal bond market in all this. First, anytime you're talking about infrastructure in this country, you're talking about state and local governments because state and local governments actually, even with this bill, state and local governments still fund over half of the infrastructure in this country and state and local governments. So they're, they're already doing most of this and state and local governments depend on the municipal market for most of their capital uh, raising. So the $4 trillion municipal market has an essential supporting role to play here. In terms of the direct muni bond, sort of the direct impact in the municipal market, there would have been in earlier iterations of this bill and also Build Back Better, uh, there would have been an even bigger direct role of the municipal bond market in terms of directly new authorized issuance of municipal bonds. There was a provision to allow municipal issuers, again, to like refinance their existing debt. There was also a direct pay bond program that was in an earlier iteration of this, which would have allowed municipal issuers really to tap the global taxable fixed income buyer base. Those provisions, unfortunately, got taken out, but there still are direct muni bond provisions in this legislation. 
in the way of primarily private activity bonds. So those are the bonds that are anytime the private sector is kind of joining forces with the public sector to create infrastructure. Those are the bond programs that are tapped, really successful for housing, really successful for healthcare, airports, things like that. There's new, there's two new brand new programs uh, in the bipartisan bill, one for uh, broadband and another for carbon capture and sequestration, which will lead to direct municipal issuance. And then there, there's also a re-up of the U.S. Department of Transportation's private activity bond programs, uh, another 15 billion. They had exhausted the 15 billion that they had. And the, those those funds are used for primarily for public-private partnerships, transportation, public-private partnerships. So it'll help move all those kind of things forward. In terms of the direct, if you're thinking of, sort of issuance in the municipal bond market, um, we have four or $500 billion of issuance a year. There'll be tens of billions of extra issuance uh, in the coming years from those programs. Um, not, a, not a huge impact. The bigger impact is going to come really from the, the indirect issuance. As I was saying before, anytime you're talking about infrastructure in the country, you're talking about state and local governments, they finance what they do in the municipal market. The grant, grant money and other money that's in this bill, it isn't almost never pays for the entire cost of, of a project. Maybe this is obvious to some people, but it's, it's just one part of the capital structure, that grant. And almost always there's, there's a requirement that state and local governments put in a certain amount of money themselves. There's other, there's just, there's other cost to this. So this, in many cases, this grant funding will help projects move forward that didn't pencil before, it didn't work, but there's a lot more to finance. And in many cases, despite the relatively high cash balances for a lot of state and local governments, they still will, for a lot of reasons, not least of which like intergenerational equity for if you're creating an asset that's going to benefit people for another 50 or 100 years, they'll very often tap the municipal bond market for that financing. So we do expect to see pretty significant increase in supply in the municipal market as a result of all these investments. But it, it will take a little bit of time. Some of these these grants, and uh, Congressman Blumenauer mentioned how much discretionary grant funding there was. That, that's a positive thing, certainly in his view and in a, lot, in a lot of ways, but it also does take time for the federal government to evaluate those grant applications for those competitive processes to get defined and to run their course. So that does delay a little bit the impact. And third and finally, just on in terms of the impact of some of the recent events, everyone's been watching the, the we had the Fed this week. Uh, everyone's been talking about inflation. What's the impact of those? First, I mean, inflation, it's, it's not helpful in, in a lot of ways. It's certainly not helpful when you're talking about there's a certain the, the, the $1.2 trillion in this bill, the $550 billion of additional spending, that's that's how much being being spent. That's not indexed to inflation. So that's a certain amount. Construction, inflation is going up. Construction cost, unfortunately, is projected to go up even more. I think next year baseline inflation, the measure the Fed looks at core PCE is two and a half percent. Construction might be six or eight percent. So you're going to get less for the same amount of money, uh, unfortunately. So that at the margins is is certainly unhelpful. In terms of the municipal market and Fed hikes, I mean, I think rate hikes are probably helpful. Uh, in general, they, they'll, it's a bond market. So the Fed's credibility is incredibly important. Uh, I think so far the Fed's managed to maintain its credibility despite this burst of inflation. And I think also this is a little more in the weeds, but the, the yield curve flattening, which is what's happening right now is the Fed signaling that it's gonna be increasing rates next year. That flattening leads to more refinancing in the market, just the way those deals pencil. So we should see more supply from that as the yield curve flattens. But with that, I think I'd hand it back to you guys. Thank you so much, Patrick, for that broad overview, which gives us some real sense of the magnitude and the potential for this change. I am going to start with one specific question and also an observation. And the observation is, as you mentioned uh, several times, this is a bipartisan 
bill, the infrastructure bill, and it points uh, in this season to the potential of working together, which I think is such a good thing. And it shows that we are able as U.S. citizens and various government roles to work together, which is such a helpful thing. And what's so important, and the congressman pointed to this, is now next working together across government levels. And uh, you mentioned, uh, Patrick, how this is going to take a time to roll out. In some ways, I suppose that's a good thing. So I'd like comments about how you, and I'd like to turn to also David and Rebecca, on how best to work together in the rollout. And before I do that, I just want to make one other point in terms of efficacy of institutions and government institutions in the U.S. And you mentioned again, Patrick, the credibility of the Fed, how important that is for municipal bond markets and state and local budgets. And again, it looks like uh, we've had some promising developments there. So with that, let me turn to perhaps Rebecca first and then David on how to work together in the rollout of the infrastructure spending best. Wait, did you say Patrick first or me first? I'm Whichever. <laughs> Whatever Patrick, you do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, just first on inflation, I'm curious to hear uh, Rebecca's views as well. I mean, it's not, it's a bad thing in some respects and other things, tax revenues, thing, a lot of tax revenues, other user fees, tolls, thing, things like that, just rents, they'll adjust with inflation that, and that's what inflation is measuring in a lot of ways. So it's not all bad or necessarily a negative. In terms of areas of government working together, also interested to hear Rebecca's views. I mean, in some ways, obviously there's a competition that's going on for some of this grant money. And as Rebecca was saying before, some of it, it's going to flow to the states first and then the local governments. But in a lot of ways, sometimes when there is federal grant money, it does help to, I've seen this with different projects, it does it does help to move things forward in the sense that if, if people don't agree, then that money could be lost. The opportunity to apply for that grant could be lost. So sometimes it does help move things forward, but I'd be curious to hear from the other panelists. Sure. In terms of, I mean, inflation, it is a Inflation is is a risk. It is a concern. I think like the rest of us, I've been watching that and seeing where that will lead uh, in terms of all types of costs and impact on not just budget for Philadelphia, but also on the population and their ability to manage rising costs as well. And government working together, I think, especially with something like the infrastructure money, where multiple governments will be applying. There's some grants that multiple governments will be applying for. Then the money's flowing to the state first. There's going to be a natural tension in a state like Pennsylvania, the city of Philadelphia, we might want different things with the money the state's getting than what the state thinks is best. And so there has to be both collaboration and probably some tension, which is natural in order to uh, advocate for where the city might want that money and then where the state wants to put that money. And to me, that the tension and the collaboration and the the back and forth is what government is. Now, it has to function. So there has to be forward movement. And and so the goal would be that forward movement would work in the end, because we all have to convene and work together at some point for the people of our our state and then, of course, for our country as well. How do you... uh help influence the, the legislature? Because in, in in some states, how ARPA money is being spent and how, how I'm presuming how the infrastructure money is being spent also uh, will be dictated by the by the, the state general fund budget and capital budget. That's the governor and the legislatures. Right. And no, that's difficult, especially in a state like Pennsylvania, where it is the legislature is Republican controlled, 
We have a Democrat governor, but he's in the end of his term. And there's a lot of just tension that goes back decades between Philadelphia and Harrisburg, which I think can be improved over the years. That is one thing that I believe strongly that if we run our city financially better, then we're more likely to have a better relationship with Harrisburg. But it is difficult. I mean, I know that our the state representatives, state senators from the area are pushing on the state. There is advocacy going on. That's a process. And it's not perfect. In some states, it might work better than others where everyone is more aligned politically. Pennsylvania, as we all know, and even saw with the last few elections, we are a politically divided state that needs to figure out how to work together to make the right decisions for our people. So that's that's on government to figure that out uh, for the people. Yeah, not strangely, that question came from Emily Mayer at, at the National Conference of State Legislatures. Related question, it's one of priorities, which I think all three of you may be able to tackle, comes from David Penderin, who is a journalist in Atlanta and a faithful listener since the start. He asks about the, the role of climate change considerations, especially in transit and transportation projects. The congressman referred to this. You have a, a burgeoning ESG municipal bond market, green bond market, without without any real definition of what ESG is necessarily. How does this all come into to setting priorities and setting financing priorities? And and also, uh, David, if you wanted to speak to the mayor's feelings on, on climate change, especially through that lens of, of equity. Sure. Did you want, I mean, I, I can start on the, on the municipal sure. bond market side. Just a quick plug with my MSRB hat on. We just put out a request for information to the whole market for the next three months, really, to, to do exactly, to address exactly what you were referencing, getting feedback from the entire market on defining those things, uh, on labeling, as well as disclosures in the space of ESG, in particular, like climate risk disclosure. So I, I think what we're expecting to hear, we're interested to hear quite a bit back from the market and hopefully start to get some more of a consensus around that labeling and also more of an understanding of like consistency around those disclosures. There's a huge role to play. There's huge needs to address, which I think is probably the most interesting part. I think these bills do that. I mean, in not entirely, but they are definitely targeted, particularly in the areas of energy. The, the investments in transportation are different than we've seen uh, in these kinds of bills. So I, I think it's all helpful. In terms of the capital markets role in this, I think it's yeah, there's certainly more and more investors that are interested in putting their money to work in that way with that kind of a theme. There's capital formation happening around those themes. That's all helpful in terms of financing these kinds of priorities. It helps to lower the cost of capital ultimately for making these investments. Either of uh, David or, or Rebecca want to want to tackle that. It's be my guest. I can looking at the clock. I can jump in just super quick and and note. I think this question and the prior one actually overlap quite a bit, especially for Rebecca's comments on states with, you know, divided sort of blue cities and red state governments, you know, over the years when we've, we've talked to mayors, not surprisingly, a number of them have said, you know, we are excited and eager and, and focused on trying to make our cities more, more climate friendly, make investments at the city level. I think some of what we heard this year, some of their priorities would certainly fit that upgrading energy upgrades to all city buildings and, and things like that. So there's certainly priorities, but again, for my earlier comments, certainly in the mix with more fixing roads and, and things that probably don't fit that that bucket as well. And again, I think this is certainly going to be a place of tension is sort of that balance of climate-friendly spending and roads and, and, and the like. 
I would just add to that, that I think that with what we've seen with climate change impacts over the last one to three years, there does seem to be more discussion from the Republican as well as the Democrat side of things to put money towards issues around climate change. I think we're seeing, is it just to build protection though from that climate change, or is it to change the energy consumption and the carbon footprint? And that seems to be some of the debate. I think that uh, it would be great to see a debate from both the Republican side as well as the Democrat on what a Green New Deal would look like to the Republicans as well because we do, you know, the impacts of climate change are 100% real. Thanks very much, Rebecca. We're going to we're going to close there because we're just about at the top of the hour. Thank you to Congressman Blumenauer, who's left us, to Patrick, Rebecca Reinhardt, David Glick. Thanks to the Volcker Alliance, Penn IUR, and the Century Foundation for making this possible. Please come back to the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to view this and previous episodes. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.